back in Mark 14, and we're going to uh, be looking at, starting in verse 12 this morning, um, interesting text uh, as we are going to start in verse 12, as I said, but remember, just as a real brief uh, recap, because Drew taught last week, and um, just to bring us back to where we were, that there was kind of, we, we saw that most commentators agree that there's a little bit of a break uh, between verses one, uh, 1 and 2 and then verse 3, you know, kind of this in-between period here. But uh, Tim Ryan brought to my attention at the end of that last class of, you know, of, of Simon and, and Mary that how they got it, you know, that, I mean, Simon was touched by the Lord and cured of leprosy. And then, you know, Mary, of course, was around him a lot and seen her brother raised from the dead. And, you know, they, they, they understood, it seemed, it appeared because Simon opened his home and Mary used this very expensive family gift to pour out on our Lord. And, and it's just interesting that the guys that were with him every day, you know, they're not necessarily, they're understanding some, but they're not getting all of it. And then you got two common people that Jesus had touched, right, in, in, in a neat, unique way. And, and they got it and they were worshiping. And then with that in mind, as I studied this week, it, it really showed me the love of Christ again as we're moving through this um, Passion Week and towards the the cross, which you know is really shows the love of Christ for you and I. Um, I suppose more than even the guys that were there with him then. But the, the, just the way this whole thing unfolds. So starting in verse twelve, if you look with me there, it says, uh, "And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go? Prepare." For you to eat the Passover. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a, wa- a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? Where I, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large room, upper room, furnished and ready there. Prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So it's interesting. Mark takes us from the treachery and the greed of Judas and and takes us back to the scene of love, if you will. And we saw the love of Mary and, and Simon, as we said, and towards Jesus. And now Mark shows us the love that Jesus had towards his 12 disciples. He's getting ready to be very um, personal with them as he comes to this, what we call the last Passover feast. In verse 12, the, the narrative moves us into the next day, into Thursday, the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed. And it's likely early in the day, you know, early in the morning, they've come, they're getting things together around Bethany, and his disciples said, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover, right? And Jesus responded to their question in a way which I I love that, you know, that these guys just, they didn't voice a lot of their perplexities, I don't think, but, you know, I think there were a lot of scratch-your-head moments for them, you know, like, okay, this just really, you know? So I think his response was one of those where they were really perplexed because, 
his, his answer was in conjunction with the fact that he, you know, the betrayer was coming. He knew it. They didn't know this part yet, but he had to kind of give them an answer that was somewhat secretive to keep uh, Judas from knowing, right? His treachery that was now going to be involved. So, because he, he, Judas had already made the deal. So, it, because if Judas discovered where they were going to be having the meal, then he could, he, he could alert the leaders that he'd already made the deal with and they could come and arrest him. And that would have been premature to what Christ wanted to do, right? So, <clears throat> to keep Judas in the dark regarding the place, Jesus had made arrangements, um, in secret. And he's the only one that knew. Well, I guess the guy, uh, carrying the water jar knew, right? And, uh, but none of the, the 12 knew. So in keeping with his plan, he sends two of the disciples. And Luke tells us that it was Peter and John. He tells them to go into the city. And his instructions were vague, like I said, mentioning, um, no locations, no names. So there's no way Judas could find out where this was going to be. Only Peter and John at this point would, would know where that location was beforehand. And I think they stayed, once they went, they stayed because it took a lot to get everything prepared for the meal. And he explained that they, you'll arrive there and you'll see a man carrying a, a jar of water. Now, in those times, women carried the water jugs, not the men. That's why he didn't have to say, well, he'll be dressed in purple and he'll be carrying a gray water jar. He didn't have to go into those details because this would be so uncommon for a man to be carrying a water jar that there would be no question as to who it was. And uh, today I would hope that uh, that would not be the case, you know, that you wouldn't be walking through town and seeing women laboring. I mean, water weighs, what, eight pounds a gallon? And I don't know how many gallons these water jars hold, but I'm sure they were more than a gallon. If you got to go tote water because you don't have running water, you're not going to tote one gallon, right? Or you'll just be going back and forth all day. So hopefully um, today we would see. But, you know, the cultures are different like that. I mean, even, in, it, well, let's, let me put it this way. In Christianity, we would hope that the men would be carrying the water jars for the women um, because there are cultures even today that, the women do those tasks rather than the men. Um, it reminds me of just how different cultures are, even in 2016. I think I shared with you guys, maybe tell me if I did when I start, and if I did, I'll not do it. But um, when I was in Egypt in November, and I was having discussions with myself and two other guys, were having discussions with eight to ten women about addiction and this one lady and I kind of started to talk at the same time and as soon as she realized that her her head went down and I stopped and you know the translator was a lady and she said go ahead looking at me and I said no you know tell her to go ahead and she said no you don't understand we don't speak above men and I said well we we prefer women above ourselves speaking so please have her share and ironically it happened again same lady and me <laughs> you know four or five minutes later but that shocked them I mean this is 20 well it was 2015 then but um, you see what I mean so I would hope in a Christian culture these women wouldn't be so guys carry your wives purses maybe uh, the, we had the choice at our house when they were in town I'm telling you that's the thing we Wait, yeah. so the Choi's missionaries in Hong Kong, they they were at our house the last year at our small group, and and Raymond shared um, that um, that's the culture in China now is the the men carry the ladies' purse. So if you want to be cool in Hong Kong, you carry your wife's purse, evidently. So I won't say anything if I see that. So Jewish. Uh, this is really interesting. The Jewish custom required you, if you had a spare room during this time, keep in mind the hundreds of thousands of people that are in Jerusalem for the Passover, right? If you had a spare room in your house, how many people have a spare room? We do as well. And somebody said, hey, my family, we don't have a place to celebrate Passover. We're not from around here. 
you were required to allow them to do that in your home. That's neat, isn't it? So that keep that in mind. Of this, so this wasn't that unusual for Jesus and the disciples to be looking for a place. So um, the two were to follow this guy that had the water jug and wherever he entered, you, you were to go to the owner of that house and say, the teacher says, where is my guest room? So you almost got to imagine there that this guy had to know Jesus, right? Because they didn't say, well, Jesus Christ said we're to come in and have a, our Passover meal here. He says the teacher, right? So I think he, the guy that owned the room had to be a follower of Christ as well because he doesn't say, you know, go to Tim Brown's house and tell him the teacher. He, he, he doesn't give a name and, or he doesn't say, you know, Drew Laws is coming. Okay, yeah, I'll give him the room. And, you know, he just says the teacher is coming. And Drew's a teacher, so... He knew him, and the disciples were to meet was apparent with Jesus because they were simply to say, like I said, the teacher said, come on. So clearly Jesus had prearranged this. Now, what was the other time that we, in, in, in the Gospel of Mark, that we talked about Jesus having prearranged something? Do you remember? Whether he did it supernaturally or through a relationship? When was it? Go and you'll find what? Come on, y'all know that. You got to remember that. Pardon? No, the the donkey, right? The foal of the donkey. You know, there was no, you know, that was prearranged somehow. So this is prearranged. I don't think this one was a supernatural one. I think Jesus had a relationship with this guy. And at some point, the two of them had talked and and they uh, agreed that we would have the meal at your house. So either way, whether it was supernatural or, or you know, in person, the room was ready. It was furnished for him and his disciples to eat the Passover meal together. So after receiving the instructions, they, they go and they found it just as he had said they would. And they make the necessary preparations for the meal, which would have included taking the lamb to the temple to be sacrificed. Right. And think of the all that was going on there, I, I just can't imagine in my mind that many people, all with lambs and other various animals and the all of the mess that the city had to have been in. I mean, it had to be a really crowded, stinky, stinky place. Flies, oh my goodness, the flies. Can you imagine? You know, with, I guess, hundreds of thousands of animals if each family had to have one, Right. Um, and they're all going to be sacrificed. The blood that was being spilled, just I can't imagine the the stench. And um, you know, you ever go to a Braves game or a Falcons game, and you see, you know, you finish your hot dog, and you just throw all your stuff on the floor, on the ground, and you know, your peanut shells everywhere, and spilled cokes and beers and everything just uh, you know and so have you ever seen one of those crews that comes they come in and if you ever go to a stadium early it's not nasty is it when you get there it's nice and clean the seats are clean the floors are clean imagine cleaning this place up this had to be really bad Um, I imagine that was a high paying job to clean up the filth that had to be there you know, so they would have taken the lamb to be sacrificed, keeping part of the roasted meat for them to eat later that evening. They would have gotten the other ingredients for the meal, the unleavened bread, the wine, the bitter herbs. And I, I did, I, I thought at this point it might be, we're not going to do this, but tell me if you would like to, we could, um, to uh, really walk through what a Passover meal included. You know, I... I just, there's just a lot of details there. Has anybody ever been to, it's called a Seder? Have you ever been to one? Some of y'all, right? I mean, the interesting part of it is Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, is woven through every moment of that meal. Every moment of it. We, I remember years ago, probably 18 years ago, when our church was smaller than the number of people in this room right now, we, um, we had a guy named Murray Tillis. I don't know if he's still around, lived over in Roswell, and he was a Messianic Jew that had a ministry. I think it was called Light of the Messiah. And, and he would come to a church and do one of those type of meals. And he came. They didn't actually, you know, 
sacrifice the lamb and all that. He just kind of walked you through the, the thing. But and it was so neat. If you ever look around Easter time and you'll be able to, or, or Passover, you'll be able to find a uh, church somewhere around that is doing that on a Friday night or a Saturday. And it's very interesting. I encourage you to go if you can. So Jesus knew that it was critical for him to celebrate the Passover with his disciples that night. Um, because during that final Passover meal with them on earth, he actually transformed the Passover celebration into the Lord's Supper, which commemorated his death on the cross. And interestingly, we're going to have the Lord's Supper this morning in our worship service. But instead, at this point with Christ, instead of representing the lambs that were killed in Egypt... The bread and the cup would now signify the body and blood of the sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ. And I'm always amazed when I read accounts of this in Scripture. I always like to go back and read, you know, Exodus chapter 12 and and the, the, the Exodus out of Egypt and all that took place with that. And it is just so interesting to me to see how God has woven all of his word intricately together, you know, to the point to where somebody can read that Old Testament stuff and then see how Jesus so ultimately completed it with his life. I mean, it's amazing to me. And, you know, a lot of people, I'm sure you know lots of people that that um, know the Bible better than you, like I do, not, not that I know it better People that know the Bible better than we do that aren't even believers, right? They, they can read Genesis. They can read Exodus. They can go all the way through and they can quote this and they can quote that. But they don't see that connection between Christ and the, and the lamb that was slain, you know, in, in the Exodus out of Egypt and how he is exiting us really out of a life of sin and death, which, you know, I'd rather be in Egypt and be free from the from sin and death than exiting out of Egypt, right? I mean, actually, how many of them really even made it into the kingdom? You know, two, right? Joshua and Caleb. Moses didn't even get to go into the promised land. So what a blessing for us to look at it that way. Um, so this was a night where devout Jews were filled with the hope of God's intervention once again. Exodus twelve forty two says of the Passover, quote, It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And I I read in this Jewish commentary this week on that passage, it says, quote, "In, In that night they were redeemed, and in that night they will be redeemed in the future. So Jesus Jesus' fulfillment of the Passover was in accord with the dream of Israel from the Old Testament, and he wanted them to see it. And this is interesting that Jesus isn't just part of history unfolding, right? He was actually writing history just as he wished it to be, just as he and the Father had planned that it would roll out. His death was absolutely no accident. We have to keep that in mind. You know, it's it's not a plan A, oh, that failed, plan B. You know, this was no accident. Because if he said, quote, Jesus Christ said, take, this is my body, that wouldn't make any sense at all if he wasn't master over his own death, right? The fact that he's master over his own death shows that he was completely in control. He was sovereignly in control of every minute detail of his death. So that gives us great hope because if God, who is in complete control when it looks like his own earthly existence is crumbling apart, then he can certainly sustain you and I when it appears that our lives are tumbling apart, right? I mean, think about that. If he was so in control of that situation that looked like, uh uh-oh, it's over, Satan wins. And, and God was writing every moment of that. Then what about our lives when it appears that we're crumbling out of control? What, what do you do personally when your life's out of control? What do y'all do? 
Where do you find peace and solitude? Pardon? Pray? Sure. What else? Where does it all start for us? We had a situation this week, my wife and I, that, you know, it appears things were drastically out of control. What, what do you do? Where, I mean, do you ever, when you hear something, do you ever get that flush of anxiety? Just, right? What do you do? Go out and get drunk? You know, that's one way to handle it for a minute. Don't recommend that, but <laughs> uh, what do you do? You know, I mean, we all get that, don't we? Sometimes more times than we want. Do you ever... I had this weird misconception that when I became a believer, you know, here's these rose-colored glasses. Oh, you know, high and by, pie in the sky, you're a Christian now, no trouble. You know, does the trouble seem to be magnified a little bit as a believer? Yeah, it seems like more is coming at you, right? What do you do? Walk me through that. I'm standing in front of you. I'm a desperate human being. I'm going to go out and shoot some heroin if you can't help me. What do you do? Cast all your care upon him. Great. Christ did everything that we would endure or suffer, and he was a sympathizer, and he died for us while we were yet sinners. Sure, great. Yeah, I mean, cast your anxieties on him. Reflect on it. So what what have you guys just done? Well, yeah, you've turned to the creator rather than what? Rather than your feelings. Turn to your feelings and where are you going? Remember, it all starts here. And then we're feeling, and where do our feelings lead to our actions, right? So you got to change it here. So both of those things, cast your anxieties on him, knowing that, that he's the one that can rescue you. What have you just done with your thinking? To what? Which is? All right. Yeah, you've gone from you and your problems to the creator, now, does that, is that going to solve the problem? I mean, take that family whose five loved ones were killed this week. You know, is just what we just said going to solve their problem? You know, in, in, a, in a millisecond later, they're going to be right back there in their thoughts. You know, that's okay, right? Because Jesus said, you know, that this yoking with him doesn't mean that we're oblivious to emotions, and feelings. I'm, I'm not saying, you know, you got to take your feelings and rub them down in the rug. I'm saying you don't follow those, though. You change your thinking first onto your Savior. Then you go through the emotions, which are perfectly fine. He, he cried, did he not? Yeah. Yeah, it's a gift to be used for a proper thing. So he cried. He had emotions, right? As he saw what? His people perishing. So, God wants us to have those things, and but he's also given us uh, some great tools to take out and use. The problem is we leave the toolbox and hidden under the all the stuff in the closet, and we don't pull it out. His word is so absolutely complete and sufficient that we can handle any problem that life throws at us, right? We actually guarantee ourselves, every one of us sitting in here that's a believer, that, yeah, I'm banking on it for salvation, Right? Which is, I mean, is there anything more important than eternity in heaven? No. Then why won't I bank on his word for th- troublesome times, real troublesome times in life? You know, and there's one other thing that I would say we could add to what we talked about, which would be the community of believers, right? Jesus died for the church, and that's what we're all here for. I'm here for. You, when you're hurting, and I pray and hope that you're here for me when I'm hurting. You know, they, there was a, uh, <clears throat> there's a, uh, what do you call it, a website in, here in Cherokee County for, uh, it's a heroin addiction website, and, and my wife is linked into it, and there was a, a lady very recently that wrote in there, and when you see how you read her, you know, two-paragraph outreach in there, and she is just absolutely desperately crushed and hurting. 
and you know doesn't know that she'll even make it another day without killing herself or going back and using it again. And Kit said, well, what do I say to her? You know, or do I just not say anything? I know you definitely need to respond. So the passage that came into my mind was, you know, is when Jesus says, you know, you who are heavy laden and burdened, you know, let me take your, my, my yoke is easy. And, you know, so those kind of things and what you and I can do for each other in the Christian life, the world can't offer. And that's a, a beautiful four-letter word called hope, right? And we can instill hope in one another because we love each other and we love our Savior. And, you know, so those are all great things that, that y'all came up with there. But think of these guys, you know, they to know that God was in complete control, that Jesus was in complete control of this whole situation gives hope. This wasn't an accident. So here they are nearly 1,500 years after that first Passover was established by God um, on the night that the Jews were liberated from the slavery in Egypt. Jesus and his disciples made their way into the room and he was now ready to institute the, the new memorial that pointed to himself and his work on the cross. So the new Passover celebrated an infinitely, I love this, greater eternal redemption from the power and the penalty of sin. A single Passover meal on the night before he's going to die, Jesus concluded that the old celebration was done and he instituted the new. And he took the components of this Passover feast and refined them into the elements of the communion table. And uh, over the centuries, the Old Testament history, think of the millions and millions of lambs that were slain as part of the annual Passover uh, observance. And each of these animals symbolized the reality that deliverance from divine wrath requires the death of an, of an innocent substitute. But one of those sacrifices, I'm, I'm sorry, but none, this, this is a very perplexing thing, and we can unpack this more if you all like. I, I started to do that for the lesson, and I backed off because I thought, you know, we would, we'd be here forever. But this, none of, these, of those sacrifices could actually atone for sin. Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. There, there's a lot that could be unpacked there. Uh, but now things would be different because this Passover, the final sacrifice, would be slain. And 1 Corinthians 5.7 says, Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So he, Jesus Christ, is the only sacrifice satisfactory to God as the offering for the atonement for sin. So now the time's come for Jesus and the others to go to the upper room to celebrate the final Passover and inaugurate the first communion. And look with me at verse, let's read verse 17 through 21 again. And it was evening, he came to the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve who is dipping bread in the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if that man had not been born. So in the evening, by Jewish understanding, would have been sometime after 6 p.m., Jesus and, and the twelve arrive. Now, <clears throat> the original Passover meal was eating, eaten standing up because they had to be ready to get out of there quick in Exodus 12. But by the time Jesus was having this meal, <clears throat> it was customary to eat in the reclining position. And Jesus being in charge of the celebration, leading the, uh, the meal, he would have pronounced a blessing on the festival itself. And then he would have taken the first cup of wine and, and drank from it, along with reciting the story of the, of the Exodus and the freedom that they got from that. And then he would actually, the next thing, would he would, the whole group together would sing Psalm 113 and 114 
which is part of what's called the Hallel 113 through 118, which means songs of praise. So <clears throat> let's look at those and read those. And um, I was hoping that Beth Ann was going to come, and she's here, and there's a piano. She's a piano expert, so we're going to get her to play the piano. And can anybody lead singing really well? And we could actually sing these to Alan can. But no, we'll just read them. Um, I would love to sing them. Actually, Darby and the praise team a couple of years ago took these... Um, I think Kyle Jones wrote these into songs, and we sang them. I don't know if y'all remember that, but look at Jesus would have led them in singing these. And let's look at one thirteen and one fourteen. One thirteen, verse one: Praise the Lord! Praise, O servants of the Lord! Praise the name of the Lord! Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to its setting. The name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the nations. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated on high? Who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her joyous, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. And then 114. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled, Jordan turned back, the mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee, O Jordan, that you turn back, O mountains that you skip like rams, O hills like lambs? Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water the flint into a spring of water. Isn't that great that they would have sung those in celebration and praise to the Lord? Well, when they finished that, then Jesus would have taken the second cup and would drink from that. And after that, he would have blessed and broken the bread, which he then handed to the disciples who ate it by actually dipping it into the bitter herbs and, and the stewed fruit that they had. So at this stage, however, very interestingly, one of the parallel passages in John, John thirteen twenty one, Jesus, it tells us Jesus was troubled in his spirit. That's at that moment when they're all dipping, Jesus is troubled in his spirit and he unleashes a bombshell. Think of this. You're sitting there. You've sang these songs of praise. Jesus becomes troubled in his spirit. And then the bomb, verse 18 And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. That had to be horrifying. I mean, can you imagine the chill bumps that just went through your body as he said that, especially the statement of the one who is eating with me. And this is actually an allusion to to Psalm 41, verse 9, where the psalmist says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And that's speaking of the the infamous treachery of Tithophel in 2 Samuel 15, where he traded on David and went with David's wicked son, Absalom, and um, switched sides as counselor, if you will. But of course, that was all part of God's ultimate plan there. But Jesus was really saying, to paraphrase, you know what, there's an Tithophel among us, one who's actually eating the bread with me. And... um, there's a traitor. So they were astonished, the disciples. They suspected no one, right? I mean, they hadn't had a talk. Yeah, one of us is going to... Judas's motivation, you and I know, was greed, right? I mean, this is the guy that had the calculator mind that as soon as he saw Mary doing what she was doing, he knew the cost of that, that nard. He's the one that had it all figured out that, you know, this kingdom isn't rolling in the way I wanted. My place of prominence isn't going to be there. He's already made the deal with the religious leaders to give him up. But nobody suspected him. And that's why the text says in verse 19, they began to be sorrowful and say to one another, is it I? But Judas, remaining calm, he said the same thing, is it I? And, you know, fooling everybody else, of course, except for Jesus, 
But think about that. All Jesus had to do at this point was point to Judas and say, traitor. You're it, Judas. You're the traitor. What do you think Peter had done? Yeah, he'd have killed him on the spot. He'd have got him in a headlock and choked him out right then. And But Jesus doesn't do that. And I think this is where my thinking on this changed a little bit this week. I think it was out of love that Jesus didn't do it that way. Look at Jesus' answer in verse 20. It's one of the 12 who's dipping bread into the dish with me. He doesn't name him. You'd have been thinking that, you know, why doesn't he name? Just tell us who it is. I think, again, it shows how much control of the entire situation that Jesus had. And um, he was in so much control that despite the doom that's coming, he, I think he's reaching out to love, in love to Judas. Once again, the compassion that the Lord, he knows his death's coming. It's not an accident. It's preordained by God. But there's one last shot for this guy. And, and John includes in this account that Jesus washed their feet, right? He washed Judas's feet as well. Actually, in John 13, 10 and 11, Jesus says, And you are clean, not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. You know, to paraphrase that, I think he was saying that, Judas, you're not clean. You're not clean, Judas. I think that's showing us a loving appeal to Judas's conscience. And, but we know this is one of those things that, you know, as people like that, we all believe wholeheartedly in the sovereignty of God over every single thing. But for, I struggle with this because I see the compassion of Jesus, but I know God's plan is sovereignly going to unroll the way he's preordained it to unroll and it's not like Judas is going to be saved in and of his own power. God would have to bestow that upon him to regenerate new life in him so that Judas could respond. But at the same time, we can't negate the love of Jesus towards him. Does that make sense? We've got to be careful with that. Otherwise, we just become cold, callous, hyper-Calvinists that don't care about anybody. right? And we've got to really be careful with that. So Jesus' love here, I think, is, is pouring out in, uh, th- that he's giving loving appeals to Judas's conscience right up to the very end. And John's account gives us more detail. I'm going to read John 13, 23 to 26. It says, One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at, at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him. Of course, that's Simon motioning to John, Right. Ask him, ask him. So uh, Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he, he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So the, listen, this is a very interesting. The culture of this day tells us that if you take a morsel of bread from the table, you dip it into the common dish and then offer it to somebody else is a gesture of friendship. All right, that's a, think about that. You just gave in loving kindness to the guy that's going to betray you. And we see this in Ruth uh, chapter 2, verse 14, when Boaz invited Ruth to fellowship with him, That verse says, quote, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied. Jesus was reaching out to Judas right here. But Judas took the bread without repenting. John 13, 27 through 30 reads, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give him something to the poor, or give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. So this is, you know, really is absolutely amazing. Here on the very night that he was going to be de- betrayed he reached out to the betrayer and then in verse 21 of mark it says uh, 
For the Son of Man goes out, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. So everything about to happen to Jesus had been foreordained by God, foretold in the scriptures. Acts 2.23 says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Details about his crucifixion were predicted in the Old Testament, right? Passages like Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Zechariah 12. And that's why Paul could tell the Corinthians that in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, right? He couldn't say that if it wasn't pre. And so we see that throughout. And it had been planned in eternity past, Revelation tells us, and recorded in the Old Testament. So Jesus did not go to the cross a helpless victim, but as the obedient son fulfilling the word of God. So it's important to note that although Judas, this is the hard part, right? Although Judas, God used Judas to accomplish God's purposes, Judas was still personally culpable for his evil actions. Have you ever thought about that? God uses our sins to accomplish his will, yet holds us accountable for our sins. You get that? I mean, that's tough, isn't it? Um, But again, it shows his sovereignty. And he says here, um, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. So in his sovereign providence, God constantly overrules people's sinful choices too, but that reality doesn't exonerate them from their wickedness. Now the word woe here, and think of the woes in Scripture. The word woe is more than a warning. It's actually a pronouncement of divine judgment and condemnation. So through his willful rejection of Christ, choosing to betray him rather than believe in him, Judas doomed his soul to eternal hell. John seventeen twelve says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have gathered them, and, no, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So Jesus continued with the sobering declaration that, that it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Well, that's the same for everybody, right, that, that uh, doesn't become a Christian because their souls are going to be doomed forever. And like everybody that rejects Christ, they're going to be doomed forever. That's sobering. So that scene's kind of closed, verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So now only the 11 faithful guys remained and Jesus now transformed the Passover meal into the Lord's table. We call the Lord's Supper, communion, And uh, again, transitioning from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. His words recorded in this passage end all of the Old Testament sacrifices for for Christians and their rituals. You know, as we'll see in a little while in Mark 15, that the the curtain is torn and we can now enter into the presence of God. This is all leading up to that. All the symbols of the Old Covenant pointed to Christ, his death, They were perfectly fulfilled and replaced. So, for the sake of time, I'm going to jump ahead here. Uh, Picture this. In, In the middle of the Passover celebration, Jesus, the true Passover lamb, starts sharing this meal with them. He he takes some of the unleavened bread and after blessing it, he Thanks his father, he broke it and he gave it to them. And we got to remember that, and he says, take this as my body. Um, Eating the bread without yeast symbolized the Israelites' hasty departure from Egypt. But it also now 
uh, represented their separation from the influences of sin. You know, they were in Egypt. I love this. They were in Egypt. The Passover meal was eaten. They exit Egypt. Now the communion table that we partake of, instead of being separated from Egypt, we as believers are now separated from sin. The leaven represents the sin. This is unleavened bread that we take, sinless. Um, it's now served as a figure of his body, which would <clears throat> soon offer itself on, on the cross for the forgiveness of sins to satisfy the wrath of God the Father. So the, keep in mind, though, the breaking of the bread didn't signify the nature of his death. Why? Because none of his bones were broken, right? Rather, it, it, it's the fact that the disciples were each given a piece. He had to break it to give everybody a piece of the bread, which actually signifies the unity of the body of Christ together in Christ. And he tells us in the passage in Luke that he gives this to you, do this in remembrance of me, and which means that we are supposed to observe the Lord's table as a, a, a memorial for what he's done for us. And some churches do it more often than others. We do it once a month. Some do it every Sunday. I guess some do it annually. I don't know. I certainly think it ought to be more than annually to remember that. But other faiths have perverted it, right? Who's really perverted it? All right. In what way? Pardon? They do it every day. Every day? Without significance. I think that's the key. They they actually re-crucify, you know, in the ceremonies that they go through. And they they have a, they, a doctrine called transubstantiation, which they think that the priest has the power somehow to actually turn the bread into the body of Christ. And then that's given to each person. And interestingly, though, they don't do the literal wine turning into blood to everybody. I don't know why they don't do that. They just do the bread and not the wine. But yeah, that's that's not what Jesus was talking about. He wasn't talking about re-crucify me each time you do this. But he's he's when he said this is my body, it was a figurative sense. And so he distributes the bread and then he takes the second element and he Verse 23 tells us, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. They all drank of it. They all drank, not just the priest. And in the Catholic Church, like I said, just the priest drinks the cup. Um, do you know the word, that the Greek word that we get the word? What word am I looking for here? The Catholics have robbed us of it. We don't use it in the Protestant Church anymore. The Eucharist, yeah. We, I don't, I'm not opposed to using that because, I mean, that doesn't mean we're Catholic, Right. That, that it's a historical title for the Lord's table. Um, it, it's, it's a good word, right? Um, and once Jesus did this, this would have been the third cup of the Passover meal following the main course. They all drank from it, demonstrates that Jesus intended for all believers to participate in both elements of the Lord's Supper. And then after he drank the cup, he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Yeah, just as the bread symbolizes his body, the cup symbolizes his blood. And the shedding of blood, of course, is a reference to death. But unlike the animal sacrifices that we talked about in the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, this is now institutes the new covenant that we live under. And that required not the sacrifice of lambs, but of the precious blood of the spotless Lamb of God, right? Jesus Christ. And every believer benefits from that. And Matthew, in his account, adds that the reason that Jesus' blood had to be shed was for the forgiveness of sins. So his death constituted the final payment so that there's no longer a need for ongoing sacrifices. guess a lot of people got put out of business, right? That you don't need to... Raise all these lambs for sacrifice. And then in verse 25, um, he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And the fruit of the vine was a Jewish expression that referred to, the, to wine in this context, specifically the wine that they drank at the Passover meal. 
And this assured his disciples that he would return. So again, he gives hope right there. Again, we'll do this again, guys, in person, just like this. Once again, we're going to do this. And Scripture tells us that uh, until he returns, that we're to continue to celebrate this meal. And like I said, we're going to do it again this morning. So the regular celebration of communion not only looks back to his death, but also looks forward to the anticipation of his coming. And think about that. You know, Lord, we're going to be doing this again around this great feast in his kingdom one day. Well, as Jesus finished this, they did have a closing song. And uh, that would have been Psalm 118. So let's read that one. Psalm 118. This is what they would have sung at the close. Verse 1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That, by the way, is the theme of Psalms. His steadfast love. Verse 2, let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. That's us, right? Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side, my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly, and the right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. I mean, what a benediction to a meal like that, right? I mean, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever, and it's still enduring for you and I today. Praise God, right? All right, well, let's pray.